At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through this three-week series, we're turning to the biblical book of Isaiah to discover how God's holiness, forgiveness, and love compel us to share Him with others. We'll come face to face with whatever's keeping us from answering God's call as Isaiah did, send me. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you uh, became so kind of aware of your own sinfulness, your own brokenness, your own just kind of destitute nature um, that it just left you feeling utterly helpless? Like just kind of, it almost like undoes you. Like it, it just kind of wrenches your heart in a way that you're like, I don't, I don't even know what to do. I just feel so like messed up. I remember... Um, I remember the first time I really had that experience. You know, I grew up a pastor's kid, and I trusted in Christ from a very young age. And so Jesus, we talk about Jesus in my home my whole life. And so growing up, I always had an awareness, yeah, I'm sinful. Jesus died for my sins. I trusted him so he could save me so I could go to heaven, right? This is, I mean, I just knew this idea from a very young age. But, but honestly, probably most of my life, that was a cognitive idea. It was something I knew, I understand. And whatever young faith I had as a kid, I, I trusted that. But, but around the time of high school, I kind of decided, I'm just going to do my own thing. Right? Like I just decided I was going to pursue my own way. Um, my, my family moved to Egypt, and I thought, if I, this is what it means to follow God, I'm just going to follow my own way because I don't want to live in Egypt anyway. So um, nothing against Egypt. That's my own heart. But, um, and, and so you know, went there, came back to college. In college, I just kind of had a, a rededication. I, I realized early on and young that, that there was something about Jesus that I did actually believe and wanted to follow. But I'll never forget. So, but still, sin remained this cognitive thing for me. And then I remember in the spring of 2005, I was in my dorm room, and I put on a sermon from Louis Giglio. He, they just had the Passion Conference in Nashville a, a couple months earlier, and Louis, uh, Pastor Louis was talking about, uh, his, his message was called Waking Up to the Whole Gospel, and, and he kind of spent the beginning of his message talking about people who live with this kind of duplicitous reality, where they're one person in front of people but they kind of have this hidden part of them that they hide. And that was me at the time. I, I had this struggle, I've, I've shared it with you, with just sexual brokenness that was so deep and ingrained. And, and as he was preaching, I mean, my, my dorm room, I was by myself, I'll never forget, it, it like became this holy space. And all of a sudden, I was just devastated. Like, I, I realized, he, I remember him saying at one point, I actually went back and listened to the sermon again this week or part of it, and it just like brought me to tears again. Because I remember him just asking this question, like, who just feels like they're in deep and they just don't know what to do? And I was like, that's, that's me. Like, I'm so entangled in my sin. I, I don't even know where to begin. And I was just, I mean, weeping on my floor, just broken at how deep the sin of my heart was. But I remember in that moment, God met me in a profound way. Um, and I, I would say that was one of the first times I truly began to understand the gospel, not just in my head, but like in the depth of my being. And even now, when I think about that moment, it's so profound because it reminds me of the depth of my brokenness, but of the grace of God. I mean, I would look at that moment, I would say that moment changed me forever. And I think that's not an experience that's just unique to me. 
I think to be undone by our sin is really a way in which we begin to experience the gospel that changes our lives and shapes the call that God has for each one of us. And today we're going to look at a passage where the prophet Isaiah experienced a moment like this. You've already heard it read, but we're going to unpack it together again as we have been over these few weeks. And I'm, my prayer, my aim this morning, in all honesty, is that as we experience this text, God would actually give each one of us a profound experience of the reality of our sin and the reality of the gospel. And that might sound a little intense. I won't lie, it is. These are, it's an intense passage, and I think an intense thing for us. But I think that, that experiencing that reality is so important for God's call on our lives, each one of us, that I really have just been praying that God would do a work by his spirit to bring us to that place. Maybe you've been in that place and it's reminding you of that place. Maybe you haven't been. My aim, my goal is that you would experience the reality of your sin and the reality of the gospel in a way that it would continue to change you. And I think this passage is going to help us do that. We're in the middle of a series that we started last week called Send Me, and I'm so thankful for the way Pastor Joel kicked off this series. Um, But we're looking at the call of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6. And in this passage, God calls Isaiah on a mission with a message to go and proclaim what God calls him to pray. And one of the things that we, why we're exploring this is we recognize that God, if you're in Jesus this morning, God has given each one of us a message and a mission to go and proclaim the good news to the world. And yet, as we engage Isaiah, and we see his willingness to surrender to God's call, this passage has a profound ability to kind of inform what can motivate us in our own call. And that's kind of why we're engaging this together. We're going through it slow. A lot of times we go big chunks of the scriptures and we pull those ideas, but through this series, we're kind of slowing down and really focusing on some of these key verses. And so this morning, we're going to jump back in. You've heard it read, but I'm going to kind of unpack some things. And in order to kind of see the verses we're going to look at this morning, I want to kind of go back into a little bit of what we read last week and kind of let it launch us into the reality and experience that Isaiah has in response to the vision that he engages. So here again, right, in chapter 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, the fiery or holy, uh, or the fiery ones is really the idea that you could have. Spiritual beings that surround God's throne. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, right? All capital letters, Yahweh, God's holy name of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. So the beginning of this passage is this vision that Isaiah has of God in his majesty, his holiness, his uniqueness, right? I'm not going to, I mean, Pastor Joel did a great job unpacking this last week, so I'm not going to steal that too much. You can go back and listen, but just a couple key things I want you to pay attention to that kind of launch us into where we're going to go in verse five. First is the proclamation that these seraphim are making of God, that he is holy, holy, holy. This trifecta of holiness in the passage is meant to proclaim to all of creation God's complete otherness, perfection, and majesty. It is to declare his intrinsic, transcendent worth and nature. Holiness, as one 
commentator says, is supremely the truth about God and his holiness in itself is so far beyond human thought that a super superlative had to be invented just to express it in the passage. Not only that, holy, holy, holy is the Lord or Yahweh, his covenant name of hosts. Now, oftentimes we breeze over that name, Yahweh of hosts. What does that mean? That word hosts is actually a military term. It can refer to armies, angelic armies. It's a phrase that describes God's role as the Lord of the heavenly armies, the commander of cosmic forces, the head of the divine council, and the leader of the armies of Israel. It's meant to picture God in his might and his power. It's proclaimed that the whole earth is full of his glory. Everything in creation is filled up with the reality of God to point towards his glory and majesty. God's glory is simply his holiness put on display in creation. It's what he does so that we might see his intrinsic worth as a holy God. And then there's shaking and smoke. So all of this, catches all of this at the beginning of the passage that Isaiah is experiencing and writing about is meant to fill your mind and imagination with the glory and majesty of God. It's, to, it's almost so mysterious in even the way it's described. It's almost unimaginable. And at some point, that's the whole point of it. That this is meant to remind you that the experience of the living God to encounter him is to be overwhelmed and left in awe at his majesty and power. So that's where the passage be kind of set up and look. But, but now we're kind of going to dig into Isaiah's response to this vision that he sees. So look at verse 5 with me now. And I said... So here's Isaiah's response to what he's encountering in this revelation of God's glory and majesty. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. Isaiah's response to seeing the majesty, the glory, the holiness of God is essentially to cry out in an expression of calamity or disaster. When Isaiah says the words, Woe is me. That's not like, whoa. Right? That's not, oh, God, you're so great. That's, ah! What? Ah! Like, I, no. Like, it's, it's to express. That expression in the Hebrew, it carries this idea of like, oh, no. Like, this is terrifying to see this. And not only that, it brings this reality of where he stands before God clearly into view. For the next thing he says out of this expression is, I'm lost. And if you look at various translations, that, that word has this kind of multifaceted idea. Some translations say, I'm ruined. It carries the idea of silent. I'm, I'm silent. I'm cut off. I'm undone. The King James says, right, I'm destroyed. It has all these connotations. It's the recognition that he's in this place of ruin. His first initial reaction to seeing the vision of God is not to look at God and say like, oh, isn't that incredible? It's actually to be terrified and to recognize I am not capable of being in the place of what I am envisioning. One commentator says, in one piercing utterance, lies his whole self-condemnation. But why does Isaiah understand himself as he sees this of God to be in a place of ruin or destruction? Why does he feel this undoing, this like, ah, oh, this, this, ah? 
Well, he gives two reasons in the text. Look at them with me. He says, for I'm lost, right? Or I'm cut off, I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. See, the first reason now he's terrified and stricken to the core in this moment is he recognizes his impurity and uncleanness. He's literally having a vision of watching spiritual heavenly beings that are almost beyond comprehension, right? They, they cover their face and their feet and they fly with these wings, a symbol in some ways of their purity before God. And Isaiah's immediate reaction in seeing this is, oh no, I'm not like that. I'm not pure like these beings. My lips are impure. I cannot proclaim the holiness of God because I am sinful. And not only am I sinful, I am among a people who are sinful. See, what Isaiah realizes in that moment is the truth that God's words proclaim, that to engage God for who he is in his holiness requires abject and absolute purity. It requires a moral nature that is so pure and good that it is, in fact, sinless. I mean, Psalm 15 tells us, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So what Isaiah is confessing here is the recognition, I'm not capable of being in God's presence. I'm not pure. Notice the connection, even in these passages, between the mouth and the heart. The confession of my lips are unclean is a confession down to the core of saying, that means my heart is unclean. It was Jesus who said, what the, mouth, or what the heart is, the mouth speaks. And he realizes that he is utterly and totally lost and cut off because he is sinful. Now, in some sense, this is amazing because Isaiah's just been lamenting the first five chapters about the sinfulness of his people. But now he counts himself among those people and recognizes his own sinfulness. What causes him to recognize it? Well, he gives a second reason. For my eyes have seen Yahweh of hosts. I've seen God in his majesty and power, and that causes me to see the depth of my own impurity and sin. You see, when we see our sin in light of God, it leaves us undone. Barry Webb in his his commentary on Isaiah says this, it's remarkable to see the prophet identify himself so completely with those whose sins he has been denouncing in the previous chapter. But in the presence of God, degrees of sin become irrelevant. It is the holiness of God which reveals to us our true condition, not comparison with others. You see, when we look at others, it's easy for us to self-justify. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm, I've used that before. I'm not Hitler. But when you compare even one degree of your sinfulness with a holy, perfect, righteous, pure, majestic God, you recognize you are ruined to the core. And that's what Isaiah sees. He recognizes his uncleanliness and his impurity, and it calls him to cry out and tear, Woe is me, for I am undone.
And it's here in this part that I think we need to pause for a moment because I think what Isaiah experiences is key for us to realize about ourselves. And it's key for how we experience the rest of what we're going to see in this passage. Because the truth is, it's not just Isaiah that's unclean, but that you and I and our natural state apart from Christ are utterly and totally impure and sinful. We are rotten to the core of ourselves. We don't just do bad things, we are bad, impure from the heart. You can think of it this way, right? Here's the easy test for each one of us. If I could take your life for a moment and I could replay it on the screen behind me, every moment of your life for everyone sitting in the room to watch, and not only that, I would replay the moments of your life, and while it was going on, I would subtitle it with every single thought you had in the moments of your life as you journeyed through your experience. How many people in the room would be like, yeah, put my life on the screen? No. No one? We laugh because we know. We know if we look at our lives... There is such a distinct brokenness deep within us that we want no one else to see it. Now imagine if that movie has to play before the most perfect, holy, pure being of all time, who is above time and history. We know we are sinful. And we know when we consider the holiness of God, there is but one response. Woe is me. Who can stand on God's holy hill? Who can ascend his, to his throne? Who is pure and blameless before him? Who has never sworn, never caused deceit, never worshipped falsely? Not one of us. The only place left to ourselves that the vision of God's holiness can leave us is utterly devastated, undone, and ruined. And friends, let me be clear. If you have never had that experience in your life, if you've never felt the feeling of undoing because of your sin, then you have not encountered the living God. You might have seen something else. You might have had another spiritual experience. But when your heart is brought before the holiness of the God of creation, there is but one response apart from Christ, and that is Isaiah's response. Woe is me, I am ruined and cut off. To experience God in his holiness is to reveal the depth of our sinfulness, that we are radically depraved to the core. And it's to realize that you have no hope in yourself to rectify that problem. You see, the reality is, for each one of us, right, we've been tainted by sin. From the moment of our conception, we are born sinful. And not only that, we engage sinfully. We are not morally pure, neutral agents. We're born into sin. We continue in sin. And the reality is every facet of our life and being is tainted by sin. And just like it would be almost impossible in my own strength to separate the contaminant from this container, it is impossible in our own strength to separate the contaminant of sin that taints our very lives and every part of it. We have no ability in ourselves 
And Isaiah recognizes it. That's why he's terrified. Apart from what happens in the next verse, which we'll get there, when we see God in his holiness and we recognize our sinfulness, it leaves us in the place to say, whoa, ah, I'm ruined. And yet, yet, it is this key foundation that sets up the glory of what happens next in the passage. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is incredible. An incredible moment in the passage, right? That this fiery one, this seraphim, takes this coal from the altar, right? The symbol of God's provision for sin and the sacrifice for sin. And he brings it and he touches Isaiah's mouth. Now remember, the mouth here is the symbol for his sin nature. He says, I'm unclean in my lips. I cannot proclaim God's praise like the spiritual beings. And what happens then in this moment as this touches his lips Isaiah is made pure. Now notice, it's not anything Isaiah does. He doesn't even ask for it. The only thing Isaiah says is like, I'm, I'm done for. And yet, in a radical act of grace, God does something to purify the depth of Isaiah's sin. Notice what the seraphim says here as he touches the coal, this symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. He touches his mouth, the core of where he's unclean, and says, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now don't gloss over that, because what the seraphim gets to in that phrase is the core issues of our sinfulness. Again, I said it, because of our sinfulness, it's not just that we do bad, it's that we are bad. So each one of us feels the reality of our sin in the key ways of guilt, which is guilt for things done or not done, and shame, which is the feeling of, I am completely broken. Right? Those are two different realities of our sin. Think of it like this, right? Let's assume that you um, were working your job and you got busted by your employer for stealing. Okay? So you cut some off the top, do something illegal, right? They find out, you get busted. There's two realities that happen in that moment. One, you're guilty. You've done a wrong that needs rectified. But the second thing that comes in that moment is you experience shame, meaning you now have a reputation. You're going to have a hard time getting a second job, even if you pay the employer back. Why? Because you have shame. You have a stigma now. You're tainted See, because of each one of us, we experience the same thing. There are things that we have done wrong or left undone which are wrong, but we also, because of sin, are tainted and have shame. What's amazing about the act of grace here to Isaiah is that God deals with both. Your guilt, your guilt is taken away. What you've done wrong and its penalty and consequence for that wrongness, that's been removed. But not only that, that shame that you have, that reputation, it's been atoned for. That idea of atonement is the idea of covering. It's God's work of taking our sin and covering it over 
in such a way that we are not viewed as sinful, but now viewed as righteous. That's the idea of atonement. Therefore, we can be restored in relationship to God. This is what amazing that God would do this for Isaiah, both deal with his guilt and his shame, and that he would do it simply out of his grace. In the law, if you touched something that was impure, you immediately became impure yourself. This is a standard reality of the Old Testament and the Torah. If you engage with something that was impure, that was connected with death, you yourselves would become impure. But what's amazing here is that what touches Isaiah reverses the effect and actually brings purity. He touches something that brings cleansing to him, that atones for his sin. And what is it? The sacrifice that's made, the symbol of the altar that's brought. And it's here that we're reminded in the passage of the nature of the gospel. What Isaiah experiences here points forward to what God will do for everyone in Jesus Christ. That he will remove our guilt and shame. That when Christ touches our lives, we move from a place of impurity to purity. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There it is. Every single one of us is tainted by sin. But what's the next verse? And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. Paul says it even more succinctly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. So that even though he didn't know sin, he was completely morally pure. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what Isaiah foreshadows is the reality that Christ, because of his sacrifice on the cross, because he laid himself to death on an altar before God to pay for sin, has become the burning coal which, when received, when touched to our lives, purifies us from our sin, removes our guilt, and covers us. We are incapable of purifying ourselves, and yet Jesus, in the work that he did by his death and resurrection completely overwhelms and pays for sin where we can be made pure. This is the reality and nature of grace. See, the reality is that Jesus in himself and the power that he has as being the only pure, sinless one who offers himself to death when his life enters our life by faith, right? We don't do anything. We just receive what God offers. When his life reaches our life, clean. Our sin is removed, and God looks at us and sees us pure. That's what God does in the gospel. What God does for Isaiah here, he provides a way for everyone to receive in and through faith in Jesus Christ. 
to be undone by the gospel, or to be, sorry, to be undone by your sin, to recognize your inability to be clean in yourself, only emphasizes the greater reality of what Jesus has done on your behalf. That he has done what you could not do. He's forgiven you and cleansed you and made you pure. And if you are in Jesus, when God sees you, he sees you in Jesus' righteousness, not your sinfulness. He sees you as pure and clean. To be undone by our sin is to also be undone by the gospel. To root it down deep in our souls and realize our only hope is faith in Jesus and nothing else. No work I do. No action I take. No deed can be done to purify a sinful heart, saving, except for saving faith in Jesus. And it roots us deep in that place of trust. And that's why the first thing I think we need to recognize from this passage today in the call of Isaiah is simply this, that you and I are called to receive God's forgiveness. Not to earn it. If you've been in that place where you've been undone by your sin, the invitation at that point is simply to receive what God has done on your behalf. Simply to trust in Christ. That's the starting point. Being undone by our sin leads us to faith in the gospel, but then it leads Isaiah like it leads us to the outworking of that in our lives. Because what happens next in the passage? God calls. I heard the voice of the Lord, verse 8. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said. So what are Isaiah's next words? His first words are, I'm undone. I, woe is me. God does this incredible act of grace in his life. And what's Isaiah's next statement? Here am I. Send me, God. Because of what you've done in my life, what I've experienced by your grace, I now surrender to what you want to do with my life for your purposes and your glory. Isaiah recognizes that he still lives among a people of unclean lifts and that God is calling out to those that will go and proclaim his message. And Isaiah willingly surrenders to the call of God because he has experienced God in his glory. He has experienced the grace of God in his life. And that always leads to the outworking of God in mission in the world. Think of it this way. Forgiveness experienced leads to forgiveness proclaimed. It leads us to say, yes, God, I will be your agent. I will be the one willing to go because I've experienced something so deep, so transformational in my soul. How could I not help but be surrendered to how you want to bring that work and that message to the world around me? When we experience forgiveness, it leads us to forgive others and to proclaim that reality. That's why Jesus said, Nat read it at the beginning of our time together, Matthew 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The, the idea in Jesus here isn't, well, you better go forgive people so God will forgive you. The idea is, if you've been so radically affected by the forgiveness of God, if you've recognized the depth of your sin, trusted that he's the only one that can forgive you, it will naturally lead to forgiveness of others. There's no other option. So if you continue to hold on to judgment, the question is, I'm not sure if you've really experienced God's forgiveness. And maybe that's because you haven't really been undone by your sin. 
See, all of us can fall into the trap of sin management. We fall into the trap of, I'll cover it up, I'll do enough, I'll do some good things, and maybe if I do enough good things, those will outweigh the bad things. So I'll give to charity, I'll come to church, I'll, do enough, I'll kind of engage some activities to kind of manage my sin. But in all of it, we never get to the point where we're undone by it. Listen, I know Christians who come to church for 30 years and have never been undone by their sin. They've never been brought to the point where they're so broken and they realize the depth of their soul that they never say, I, I have no hope apart from the work of Christ. And oftentimes they're the most judgmental people. They have the hardest time extending grace to others because they haven't experienced the extension of God's grace to them. They're still just trying to manage their sin, not recognizing they can't do anything about it. Only Jesus can purify their soul. And that's why Jesus says, if you forgive, it's connected with God's forgiveness of you. And then it leads us to be the sort of people that surrender our lives to his purposes. You see, all this reminds us, even as we embrace this series, that because of his undoing by sin, and because of his radical experience of grace, Isaiah is compelled to go on behalf of God. God's forgiveness compels us to go. In the same way his glory does, his grace and forgiveness compel us to be people who go as well. Go back to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. Right? What, what's the verse right before that? I'll put it on the screen for you. Shoot, I can't read it on the back, so I actually have to turn to it in my Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's Paul's call into our mission. Our mission is to be ambassadors for God in the world. To go and proclaim the reconciliation that's available to all people to be restored in relationship to God through faith in Jesus. But what's the motivation? Because for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. What motivates our calling to being ambassadors in the world is the experience of God's grace in Jesus Christ. When you've experienced that, it compels you to go. Several years ago, um, Lifeway, which is the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, commissioned a study where they wanted to see what are the things that people engage that actually help them grow spiritually. So they did a survey where they, they marked out like eight characteristics, and they did all sorts of churches from all sorts of different denominations. It was extensive, super extensive. You can find it online. And they, they wanted to research. They, they developed these eight marks of a Christian that they saw of a growing Christian, somebody who's growing in their spiritual life with God. And then they went back in to say, what are the things they engage that help them grow in their life? And it's a fascinating study. There's lots of stuff and, that you can pull out of it. I heard a presentation on it several years ago at a conference. But one of the things that stood out that was really interesting, because one of the marks was the willingness of growing Christians. One of the things that marks growing Christians is the willingness to share their faith with others. And one of the things that they found in their correlation Right? So they were like, what helps people move towards being the sort of people that will share their faith with others? You know what one of the key factors is? In fact, I think it was the number one, if I remember right, or maybe number two. People who regularly confess their sins. People who regularly confessed their sins were more willing to share their faith with others than people who didn't. Why do you think that's the case? 
Because when we recognize our own sinfulness and humility, when we recognize we have no hope apart from Christ, it leads us to say, well, that's their hope too. It leads us to say, I can't be a person that stands in judgment over those who struggle in sin because I was a sinner and God showed me grace. So how can I not share that truth? It's the old adage, it's still good that Christians, right, are just hungry people that have found bread who seek to go share that bread with other hungry people. We're that sort of people. We found that forgiveness. And now our compulsion out of that is that others want to experience, or for others to experience that. When you've been changed by the gospel, it's so amazing. There isn't anything you won't do to help others have the opportunity to experience the same thing. You'll surrender your life, your resources, your time to say, how, how can I help others experience what's changed me? Because I know what it means to be undone by my sin. And I know what it means that God saved me from that place. If that's you, man, you, you'll be compelled to go. Like I look at our global expansion stuff that we're doing here, which I'm so pumped about. And I'm like, and how can we not do this? How can we not work to get the gospel to people who never had it? I've been in India. I've seen the temples that people bring their food to when they're starving in worship of a picture. I've lived in the Muslim world and watched people break their backs, hoping maybe they'll do enough good deeds to outweigh their bad deeds, but they're not really sure. know what it means to experience the forgiveness of God. I know what it means to experience grace. So how can I not want to be part of this? How can I not want to be part of whatever it takes to get the gospel? God, you can have my life. You can have my money. You can have my time. You can have whatever. Like Isaiah, I've experienced such a life-transforming reality. How can I not stand and say, here I am. Send me. And I'm in on that, friends. And I hope you are too. But if we're going to be compelled to go, it takes that experience and reminder of the forgiveness that God's done in our lives. And that's what I want to invite us to this morning. Maybe you've never had that experience. Maybe you've never been undone by your sin and had nowhere to look but Jesus alone. I pray that happens for you this morning. Maybe you have had that moment in your life like I have, but you've lost sight of it. And you need reminded of when you were undone by your sin and the gospel met you and covered you and atoned for your grace. Because I can get up here and preach till I'm blue in the face. Go, 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 go. But when you, when you experience that moment, when you're reminded of that moment, then I don't have to preach anymore. Because you'll be compelled to go on behalf of Jesus Christ and spread his good news to the world. So I actually want to end our time by inviting you to a moment of just personal confession before God. And I'm going to ask God right now, like I've been praying all week, that the Holy Spirit would bring the weight of your sinfulness to bear on your soul in this moment. And then that that would cause you to look to Christ I'm just going to give you some moments. You can bow your head, close your eyes, not to be weird, just to give you some 
personal space to reflect. Amanda's gonna keep playing for a couple minutes. I'm just gonna invite you to confess your sinfulness. And then Nat's gonna come and lead us in a kind of song of prayer, of proclaiming the reality of Jesus. My prayer through this is God would bring the weight of your sin to bear on you, but then would cause you to be reminded of the great grace that is in Christ. So Holy Spirit, would you fall upon this place and bring the weight of sin to bear, but also bring the hope of Jesus right now, we pray in your name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.